Hello, and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All, where your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you some of the scandalous and more interesting sides of history. This is our first episode of 2022. Yeah. Taylor Swift's 22 drop in. I don't think we have the rights to that. Um, yeah, it's our first episode of 2022. We're so excited. As always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we're the, the Rebecca's. Yes. <laughs> That's the energy we're bringing into the new year. Yeah, I am so excited. A new year, new topics. Um, we are going to be hitting in the next couple months a lot of patron uh, and listener of the pod requests. So a lot of these topics coming up are requests, which we love. Yes, we love it. Please send us all your requests. We would love to talk about what you want to hear about. So that's exciting. Yeah, I love knowing that like when we drop an episode, there's at least one person out there who's like, they're finally talking about what I want to hear. (laughs) And also we should mention our patrons are beautiful and they're wonderful. And thank you for being our patrons again. We're so excited to bring the pod back um, and keep going. And you guys make that happen. So if you're not a patron, become a patron and patrons are amazing. Patrons get special episodes. We're also working out maybe some other new goodies for patrons, including uh, potentially opportunities to take advantage of some of our tours um, with little discounts and specials. So um, we're going to be trying to beef up our patron perks over the next few months. But thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our patrons. Um, We could not do this without you. So... um, this is really a topic that I'm going to let Rebecca take the lead on, although I certainly have a couple things to say. But I think before we jump in, we should acknowledge that this is going to be released, this episode, on January 6th. Yes. And that is the, the one-year anniversary of the insurrection of the attack on the Capitol building and on our city of Washington, D.C. And uh, we wanted to do an episode that had a connection to that because I think it's important to process the present to understand past. I agree. We wanted to do this. And January 6th is, um, we have so many thoughts and feelings about it, uh, about the insurrection. And one of the main things that I have come down with, like on the, um, as the one year approaches is that DC is a city that, you know, people who aren't in the area think, oh, DC is just the political capital. But this is an attack that happened on our our turf in our city on our territory in a place that we know well and i feel like that kind of gets lost there's not a lot of like sympathy for the people in dc who went through something very real uh, a year ago and so this is sort of our way of talking about something kind of uh related and so we wanted to talk about um well we want to talk about the war of 1812 and that's a big topic. <laughs> it's a whole war, as it turns out. And so we're, we may get into, I think at a later point, the beginnings of the war and sort of how this all kind of happens. Uh, but specifically for this episode, we're going to talk about um, the um, D- invasion of DC and the burning of the Capitol and the White House, and then the Battle of Fort McHenry, uh, which are sort of very resonant in this area um it involves the capital which is where we're linking it up to on our january 6th episode so that's kind of be going to be what we kind of get into and the war of 1812 is like america's most forgotten war (laughs) like i think because we're tour guides we we talk about it but honestly if it weren't for the star-spangled banner spoiler i guess 
teaser for later. Yeah, and if it weren't for the fact that the White House, the Capitol were burned and attacked, I don't know that we, we would talk about the War of 1812. And God knows if you're not a tour guide and you're not a history teacher, there's probably not a lot of reason for you to be thinking or talking about the War of 1812. It really does get like forgotten. It gets kind of shoved aside. And I love, <laughs> I wish sometimes you guys could see our notes. Rebecca's note is, doesn't even get a cool name, which is true. This war is the most boring named war. And right. it's inaccurate because it's not the War of 1812. It's the War of 1812 to 1815. Right. It's like we've memory hold this war so much that like we don't even know like why it was fought, how long it was fought, who really we fought with. Like we have this notion collectively that there's the White House being burned and then the Star Spangled Banner. But like, are those related at all? Like there's no, and we do talk about it. I find myself talking about the War of 1812 on a, um, surprising number of tours in DC and we'll get to like why that's resonant here in a little bit but it's sort of forgotten and it just is you know one of those things that we just kind of wrap up but uh, so to just kind of jump in to where we are we're going to start in eight, pick up in 1814 so the war is declared in 1812 which is why it's called the war of 1812 but not a lot happens primarily for a number of reasons but the primary one is the british are otherwise involved they've got this guy called napoleon and he's a whole thing and they have to kind of deal with him and that is gonna sort of wrap up, and we are super not getting into Napoleon right now, uh, but that's gonna wrap up in like the spring of 1814. And so the British are gonna like move their like view over to this, like this area of the world. And so they're gonna switch from their European focus and kind of move troops and move like all kinds of things. Um, down from Canada and across the Atlantic so that they now can throw their full weight uh, behind this war with uh, the United States. And so, and, oh, oops, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to jump into and say, I think it's just important to keep in mind as we start to talk about 1814, how young the United States still is, how young our government is, how young our capital city is, the federal district has only existed for not even truly like 20 years at that point. And we have no real army or navy to speak of. So we are participating in this war to which the United States has given very, very little military funding. There's a guy named Albert Gallatin, who was secretary of the treasury, uh, under Jefferson and then Madison. And uh, he had really, really, really blocked like any chance of financial funding to the military. Uh, one of the many sort of weird or not weird, unusual by today's standards, things that Gallatin does. And um, that means that we are like, yeah, 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 we're in this war, but we really, it's, it's not, not something that we are really prepared for or staffed for. Staff's not yeah. the right word. But we have no, not, we've not built up the force needed right we have not in, like engaged in our military in the way that we need to and we're going up against the world's largest military like we're going up against the british with their big navy they're just coming off this massive victory against napoleon they are you know in india and all sorts of other places like they the british are not messing around uh and we're gonna kind of go up against them and their strategy they've got a true two-pronged strategy basically to deal with 
uh, the United States. And it involves Washington, D.C., and it involves Baltimore. And so we're going to deal with them in sort of succession, because D.C. comes first and then Baltimore. And the idea with D.C. at that time, like D.C. was the capital of the United States, of course, but it was really small. It has only existed as a city for 14 years. You know, it has been it's got the the capital and the White House. And so the president lives there. But it's like 20,000 people. There's not a lot going on here. Um, and the British, they're big. I mean, as everybody who studies history at all knows, the British are known for their Navy. And DC's not really like, we're on a river, but this isn't like where you can stage a big naval battle in Washington. So they want Baltimore for that reason as well. Because Baltimore's right on the coast, it's on the Chesapeake Bay. You can just, you know, bottle up the harbor and cut the United States in half. So that's why Baltimore's kind of important. It's also bigger, it's got a big port. We'll get to it. Um, DC, they're going, there's something called the Battle of uh, Bladensburg, which Bladensburg today is basically part of the DC suburbs. It's in Maryland, it's um, northeast of the capital. Uh, and that battle is going to take place on August 24th. And after winning the battle, and the British win pretty decisively, they're going to march down to DC that night and burn a lot of things. And they're angry. The Americans had burned a city in Canada called York, uh, which was sort of the British capital in Canada at that time. Uh, we had done that a year earlier. And so the British are angry at us and they want to basically seek revenge, burn our capital, like a capital burning for a capital burning. And so they're British are going to invade. Oh, sorry, you're going to say something? I was just going yeah. to say, as the British are sort of invading, I think it's important to note that there is not a single trained American soldier in the vicinity of Washington, D.C. in August of 1814. They have been the little bit of organized army we have has been out fighting elsewhere. All President James Madison can do is sort of call out the militia. So they try to kind of muster up some militias to come defend the Capitol. They're all under the command of a guy named Brigadier General William Winder, who I have to just mention is like, to me, one of the quintessential like nepotism appointments in American history and certainly for the War of 1812. He has become this Brigadier General simply because his uncle is the governor of Maryland and because Maryland happened to have raised some militia to support this cause. So you have a bunch of absolutely untrained militiamen and then you have this guy who's been elevated to this uh, military position who has no clue what he's doing and that's what we have to defend our capital. That's that's it. There's There's really very little else. Yes, and the British... And I should also mention, this is the point at which I'm going to mention, the British have two commanders, Cochrane and Cockburn. And yes, that is confusing. And we're going to confuse, I'm going to confuse them. Uh, the one, basically <laughs> Can the we just call them the two cocks? I don't know. Should we? I think we should. Um, Cockburn is D.C. Cochrane is Baltimore. So basically... They're both kind of involved in both, but that's the sort of for ease and sort of our sanity. Um, and they're both, and speaking of nepotism, they're both titled dudes. Like this is the British military is not really necessarily based on merit either, uh, but they've got long successful careers. They have way more military experience, way more way training. Way more military experience. So yes. this is, 
this is absolutely a huge imbalance in terms of who's leading the British and who's leading the Americans. This is like David and like Goliath, but like twice Goliath's size. Like this is a big thing. And the British are going to burn the capital first because the capital and they this is how they put it. The capital is the only building worthy to be noticed in Washington, D.C., which is true. So the capital that we know today is a renovation that happens uh, pre- right before the Civil War. The capital then was quite a bit smaller, but still had a half dome. It was definitely the largest building in the city. And the city wasn't that big either. Uh, But this was a building you could see for miles around. DC did not then certainly have tall buildings. So the capital is very visible. And this is going to be the symbol that the British are invading. That's what it is. It's it's so much to, it's absolutely the largest building that matters, but it's the symbol, especially at this part in America's history, there had been such a focus in not putting too much weight on the executive, the president, right? We don't want to look like we're a pseudo monarchy. And so what Congress represents, right? What the Capitol represents is this uh, representative democracy. It represents this sort of government of the people, by the people, for the people. And so part of the reason why the British truly want to capture and take this building is because it's a blow to sort of the idea of what our still very young nation is built on. So I think it's important that they set fire to the House wing. They set fire to the Southern wing of the Capitol, which is the House of Representatives, still is the House of Representatives. I think that's significant too. They are burning down the idea of representative government. They're burning down the sort of idea that we can govern ourselves. I think that that's an underrepresented and underappreciated portion of this. Yes, they do burn down the White House, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but the the idea that they go straight for the Capitol and they go straight for this, like, the we're basically, basically they are trying to snuff the life out of democracy while it's still kind of toddling around. Like, we're not a newborn democracy anymore, but we're also not that old either. And there's still a lot of anger, I think, about the revolution, we're a generation later, uh, but it's also like we used to be British and that's part feeding in here too. And I, I think too, without going too deep into sort of the build up to the war of 1812, but also it's a little bit of trying to put America, quote unquote, back into its place um, mm-hmm. to sort of say, sure, maybe you want independence for these handful of former colonies, but you're not a real country, you're not a big country, you're not gonna take this continent, you're not going to expand and grow, this is all you're ever going to be. And I do think there's a sense of by sort of hitting the capital, hitting that that representation of our young burgeoning democracy, there is a sort of sense of like trying to put us back into place or to sort of snuff out the growth that we're on the cusp on of truly. And I also feel like there's a sense that like, you didn't really win independence, You we just gave up on you. Yeah. And I think the British want to reinforce that idea that, you know, we could take back what's ours whenever we want to. We just decided you weren't worth the effort. I think there's a sense of that, too. Um, And so they're going to burn the Capitol, the particularly the the house, the southern wing. And it does a lot of damage. It burns at that time. The Library of Congress is housed in the Capitol building and books burn pretty quickly. So the book, the entire Library of Congress goes up in flames. Uh, They're going to do thousands of dollars worth of damage at the time like that's you know 
um, going to be the Supreme Court is housed in the Capitol at that time. Uh, they are um, going to do what they estimate is uh, $787,163 worth of damage. Uh, and that is the superintendent of public buildings for the city of Washington at the time. So that's a lot of damage. Uh, they glass melts, the wooden ceilings and floor burn. The building's not totally lost. The house rotunda, the east lobby and staircases, they survive. But by and large, it is a very significant uh, uh, damage to the United States Capitol building. And they also turn on the White House. They turn northwest up Pennsylvania Avenue. It is still to this day just a straight shot right up Pennsylvania Avenue. You can practically see it. And uh, the, knowing this is coming, the president and his wife have fled. So they've left Washington. And to, to actually break that down just a little bit, um, James Madison has gone off with the militia. He has decided that it is important for the men to at least see the president, maybe not perhaps on the front lines of combat, but he's going to ride with them to Maryland. Um, you know, so he's going to put, put a little um, behind his words and go out there. So respect for our short king, um, our very tiny James Madison. Um, <laughs> Dolly will eventually flee. But I will say this about Dolly Madison. When President Madison leaves, he leaves about 100 militiamen um, on the White House lawn. And I love that he does that because one, it's like, this is this is the White House. It's part of the executive branch. We're not just going to give it up easy. And he's also like, my wife is in here and I'm not just going to leave her unattended. So I think that's kind of sweet that it's like, here's your 100 militiamen. Um, but she really does try to stick around. It's not her intention to to cause panic and she's very well aware of how every move she makes is going to be how it's going to play out in the press how it's going to look so she really does wait it out until the like last possible minute she even throws a dinner party on the night of august 23rd um and then it's sort of like okay yeah no i definitely need to get out of here the british are marching they're coming but when she flees like she really does push it i feel like close to sort of the last minute and she does. She pushes it to the last minute. And we'll get into the story about the the portrait uh, in just a second. But I also just want to pause on this. And this is something that as Americans, we are so not accustomed to. We don't have armies that march really on American territory. There are a few exceptions, but this is not a... We are in this way blessed by geography. There, You can invade the United States today. No one living can remember a time when that was possible. Like, it's just not a thing that we fear. We can get bombed, sure, but like an invading army coming to the Capitol is really the foreign army even lincoln says you know no army will ever by force take a drink out of the ohio river like we can you cannot invade the united states with an army it's just it's almost impossible to imagine and so the fact that this is happening is i think that maybe this is part of the reason this war gets memory hold because it's just so like disorienting to us to imagine like the capital being invaded um and sort of that uh, imagine that happening and dolly madison does wait until the last minute because she's kind of badass um dolly <laughs> madison has gotten a letter from her husband that says look at you can stick around but you need to be ready to go like at a moment's notice like you need to get your stuff ready and this is real is we're not holding them back they are coming this is happening. right 
we cannot hold them back. We have like a thousand guys and they have like five. <laughs> um, and Dolly, the, so the story about the painting, so there's this very famous portrait of George Washington. It's called the Gilbert portrait. And if you've ever seen a $1 bill, that's the portrait. <laughs> that's that one. And at that time it was hanging in the, the White House because he's the first president. And the story goes that Dolly Madison is gonna order someone to take it down and basically shove it into her carriage as she's literally fleeing the White House with the British soldiers like steps behind her. And she manages like to heroically save this portrait of Washington. That's not 100% accurate. the it is basically she's going to remove a lot of stuff she has a lot of stuff like ready to go and sort of carried out um she it's the story at the time is um that they're she's going to have it rolled up and put off in a wag basically the president's gardener is going to take it and sort of steal away with it somewhere um she is going to leave apparently plenty of food out because the british when they arrive they basically go into the white house eat all the food and drink all the wine, which is 100% what I would do. And then she had been planning a party, like she was gonna have this big dinner party. And so she had the spread laid out and the British eat all the food, drink all the wine, and then back out of the White House and basically burn it down. Um, They're gonna throw these, something called a Congrev rocket, which is essentially like a flamethrower onto the roof of the White House and the White House Uh, catches fire now i want to dispel a myth the white house itself does not burn down so the white house is made of aquia sandstone and i don't know anything about fires and sandstone but it doesn't get hot enough to burn the sandstone that's that's not what happens what does happen is everything inside of the house basically burns yeah that's wood it's timber it's lumber yes it's lots, lots of wood, lots of accelerant, but the outside, the stone structure does not burn down, which is a subtle distinction, I feel like, but still a distinction. Um, the British ransack, they burn, and then they add a lot of fuel to make sure that the White House remains burning all night. Uh, and so this that's going to be sort of this dramatic visual of the president's house. And at the time, it was not called the White House. That's not a term that's used back then. It's called the president's house. And so the president's house is going to burn all night. The Capitol burns all night. And the British are going to attack a couple other buildings. They burn the Treasury Building. Uh, Cockburn wants to burn a newspaper office that had been critical of him because that seems like the kind of guy he was. (laughs) But he is going to be persuaded by women who live in the area that it would very easily spread to their homes and burn their homes down. And he's very conscious of not wanting to burn down private homes. So he's very careful about that. And so he actually backs away from burning down this newspaper, which had been nasty to him. Um, William Thornton is going to save the patent office. William Thornton... Thornton designed the original Capitol building. Uh, he was the architect of it. He's also going to design the patent office. And so he's going to persuade them to save that building. Uh, they're going to burn the Navy Yard. And it, what happens? There's a lot of ammunition at a Navy Yard. Yeah, that was basically the Trump arsenal. Time. It was where we were, you know, <laughs> like making munitions. 
And when the fire gets to the arsenal, it goes boom. <laughs> In a big way, it, it goes boom. <laughs> and there's an explosion at what is now Fort McNair. So a lot of that sort of southwestern edge of the city burns down uh, pretty significantly. Uh, and so there's a lot of damage. This The British do a good bit of damage. Uh, to the point where in the aftermath of this, there is talk about just moving the capital entirely. Just it, the city is beyond repair. It can't be saved. Next day, though. Oh, and I also want to mention this. I found this to be absolutely delightful and fantastic. Uh, the president and his family flee to a little town called Brookville, Maryland, which is apparently still there. It's like north of Silver Spring. And they still now, even to this day, call themselves the U.S. Capitol for a day. And the house that he flees to is still standing, and it's now the Madison House, and it's kind of this cute little historic moment sort of north of the of the city. So now I feel like we should take a tour guide tell-all field trip to Brookville and go to the Madison House. That is my my think, my thought here. Uh, at any rate, the next day, the British only occupy D.C. for 26 hours. They don't want to stay. That's not their intention. Their, their basic plan is to burn and then get out. They are going to, um, and they're successful in the burning. What slows them down and what actually puts out a lot of the fires is there's a big thunderstorm that hits D.C. It is, it could be, it's not clear. It might have been a hurricane. It's not really uh, clear, but there's a lot of rain. And so the rain is going to put out some fires and spread others, which is great. And so this is where you're going to see some destruction of private homes. The thunderstorms are going to blow the fires in different directions. And you're going to see, like, for example, the, the uh, Belmont Paul National Historic National Women's Monument. That actually has uh, some damage from these fires because of uh, the... Um, the thunderstorms that day so that is going to play a factor here as well the um there's a, a story that is almost certainly apocryphal that as uh cockburn is leaving the city he make he finds some local woman and he says is this weather always like this in this terrible town and she's like no we just got this terrible weather to drive you out of here <laughs> so basically that's the i'm sure that that's 100 percent made up i like I it anyway, anyway. <laughs> So the renovation, the they're going to push to permanently relocate the capital. There's a push to bring it back. Yeah, to and let me tell you, it's not just a push. Like the Common Council of Philadelphia starts writing these broadsheets and pamphlets, and sending them to members of Congress and saying, "We'll provide housing. We'll provide office space." They do the full court press on Dolly, just like we've got these beautiful homes and stuff. And it really is, uh, I think, James and Dolly Madison that say, "We have got to stay here." This is about the power mm -hmm. of the capital. And, and it's really remarkable to me. I mean, James Madison returns to Washington, D.C. on the 27th of August. So we're talking three days later. Um, and this is at a time where there's no security or protection of any kind for the president. So he's well aware of the symbolism of maintaining the capital. Mm -hmm. But Philly, man, they push so hard. They see this opportunity to be like, oh, we're going to get the capital. This is going to be us. It's going to happen. And they do like everything in their power. But really, the Madison stop it. Uh, and Dolly is going to persuade um, a man named Colonel Taylor uh, to let them use the Octagon House, uh, which is on New York Avenue today, um, as the official residence. And she opens a social season that September, a month after the White House has burned. She's opening the social season. And she is acting as though nothing has happened and they're just going to rebuild and keep going forward which is kind of i think remarkable 
it really is remarkable. She Dolly Madison never sets quit, and she's from Philadelphia. Like it's she's not personal from that to area. Philly. So to, <laughs> no, it, I yeah, Philly's the best. Um, and they want it so badly to be the capital, and this is like their moment, and they try to seize it, and it just doesn't work out for them, and I'm sad. Um, at any rate, um, it take the renovation on the capital takes more than a decade. They don't finish it until 1826. The renovation on the White House, they actually think about scrapping the White House entirely and just basically starting over. It is so badly damaged. What is left is covered in soot and ash and all the and rain from a and fire. mold and, and uh, just endless. And it hadn't really been complete that long. Like this is again 1814. They hadn't the White House had been complete for barely a decade, and they. In only in a short amount of time, though, the president's house had been become a symbol of American power at the presidency, and the Madisons are very insistent that the work uh, to um, finish it go on, and it does. Uh, it it takes about three years. They actually redo the White House, the president's house, much faster than the Capitol, um, and um, so that's going to be what happens and this is the reason it's called white by the way the outside is so badly scorched and damaged that they decide when they redo it to paint the outside white to sort of uh cover up all that scorch and ash uh marks and i am told that you can still see in parts of the white house today some of the uh residue and the this is my ash. tip for those listening if um you visit the white house and you take a public tour I'm not saying that you need to like go out of the way to like break your leg or something, but if you were say to be in a wheelchair um, and unable to use the stairs, the wheelchair access for a public tour typically brings you around an area where you can see a scorch mark from the burning of the White House. Um, because you go down a separate mm -hmm. corridor a different way than you normally would if you just simply enter um, through the typical public tour route. So that's my little tip. If you uh, ever visit, have somebody in a wheelchair and you want to escort them, um, you might get a chance to see that. I love it. I love it so much. Um, so then the British have burned Washington and they're going to head up to Baltimore. And they get to Baltimore about two and a half weeks later. So the Battle of Fort McHenry is uh, September 13th to 14th. So literally August 24th is the burning of Washington. So we're like two and a half weeks later. And Baltimore Harbor is a, it's a big harbor and it's in the middle of the country. And so this is your primo port. Uh, you're, this is how you supply the entire middle of the country. And by taking Baltimore, you're dividing the country in half. The British know this. The British know this is going to disrupt shipping lanes. This is going to disrupt military um, sort of disbursement. This is going to cut the country in half effectively. That's why Baltimore is a big deal. And in the middle of Baltimore Harbor is a point it's still there. It's called Locust Point. And at the end of Locust Point is Fort McHenry. And Fort McHenry has been there since well before this war. This is with the original defense of Baltimore uh, back when it was a uh, Maryland colony. And Fort McHenry is a typical star-shaped fort for its day. It still is. And um, this is the best defense they had at the time. And 
we're the Battle of DC is going to give Baltimore two critical weeks to prepare for this. So the Americans know, and they can look at a map, and they can think the exact same thing the British are thinking. If it were us, we would go to Baltimore. And so that's exactly what they do. They go to Baltimore and shore up all the defenses. The British are going to... Um, the night of September 13th is when they basically attack Fort McHenry, and they're going to bombard the fort all night long. And they are going to use their several ships. They're unable to use their very heavy warships because the water is so shallow in the in Baltimore Harbor. So Admiral Cochran, not Cockburn anymore, but Cochran, uses bombing vessels. He's going to use both mortars and these new Congrev rockets, which, as it turns out, have a red glare as they hit. This will become <laughs> important later. <laughs> The commander inside the fort is George Armistead, and he's got about a thousand guys, and there are several ships, thousands of British troops uh, on these ships. They've got them on land as well, and George Armistead has seen this coming. He knows how important Fort McHenry is, and he knows he's got to hold out. Like, there really is no other option. He knows how what a big deal this is, and... He has, um, George Armistead has, knowing the importance of Fort McHenry, he has actually commissioned a local seamstress, a woman named Mary Pickersgill, to make a flag to fly out of, the, out of Fort McHenry. And the idea is a normal size flag you can't see for that far, but this big flag you can see for miles around. And it's actually, they use this flag every day for Reveille in the morning, but... After the Battle of Fort McHenry, he's the he is going to hoist this flag up to let everyone know that the Americans are still there. So the Americans have retained control of the fort. And by extension, have maintained protection of Baltimore and this major harbor. Right. So this flag is like the signal, the beacon, like we... Can, the Americans have maintained control. The British did not win. And it's going to let everybody know, even the British, that like we're still here. And in one of the British ships is a man. You may not know, but you may have heard his name. His name is Francis Scott Key. And I would like to do at some point a whole pod on Francis Scott Key because he's kind of a fascinating guy. He's actually related by marriage to the Taylor family, which Becca just mentioned a minute earlier. It's their house that the Madisons live in. Um, after the White House is burnt. So the Taylor family is a pretty big deal. Francis Scott Key is a DC lawyer. He is uh, a fairly good one, actually. He is involved in a bunch of different things. And he is going to be at Fort McHenry. And the reason he's there is he's there to negotiate the release of several prisoners who have been taken prisoner by the British and are in these uh, ships. And they he negotiates the the it tries to negotiate their release but then the british are going to say oh no sorry we can't let you leave because now that you've been on this ship you're familiar with where our ships are and our strength is and you know the position of our units and our intentions and you can't we can't allow you to leave because the first thing you'll do is inform 
the Americans where our strength is, what our intentions are. And so Francis Gakki has has been said to be a prisoner. He's kind of a prisoner. He's also kind of not. Uh, But at any rate, he's going to um, involuntarily spend the night on one of these British ships that is bombarding Fort McHenry. So all he can do is watch. And like everybody else, Francis Gakki, the next morning at dawn, by dawn's early light, will see that the American flag still waves above Fort, above Fort McHenry. Uh, and so he is later going to write a poem about his experience called The Defense of Fort McHenry, which is published like a week later, and is eventually going to be set to uh, music. A British drinking song. And a British drinking song, correct. I mean, all British songs are kind of drinking songs, but... British songs are kind of drinking songs. That's true. And it's renamed. And what is it renamed, Becca? The Star-Spangled Banner. Correct. They renamed it the Star-Spangled Banner. Uh, And so he basically writes his poem about the uh, bombing of Fort McHenry is going to become the the basis for what is eventually going to become our national anthem. Now, a couple of notes about this. First of all, his poem, and in fact, the Star-Spangled Banner, is four verses long we only know the first one that's the only one anyone's ever heard of literally like i could read you the other three verses and you'd have no idea what i was talking about it's actually kind of amazing it also has not been our national anthem all that long um it is going to be adopted by an act of congress in 1931 and it basically beats out my country tis of thee and america the beautiful and I always suspect that My Country Tis of Thee and America the Beautiful like split the vote and like our Star Spangled Banner was like the dark horse candidate. The but, hardest like, song to sing. Right. It is if you are not a professional vocalist. Even if you are, like how many people have messed it up at the Super Bowl? Like it's a hard one. It jumps in key because again, you're supposed to be singing it when you're drunk. And so when we're you're drunk, we all think we're like, you know, <laughs> much better songstresses than we And it are, really was perhaps. too. It was kind of a bit of a party song. It was sort of like, hey, look at how great the US is. We won this war. Now we tend to sing it much more reverently and, and with sort of the weight of being the national anthem. But it sort of was like a, hey, Johnny boy, we beat the Brits kind of thing, you know, hey. Mm-hmm. And it's also, we we set, we slow it down. Like the tempo is much, meant to be much faster. It's a, again, a drinking song. It's meant to be sped up. It was does not acquire the sort of reverence that we treat it with for a little while. Um, and so it's just kind of an interesting evolution. We'll have to do a whole pod on Francis Scott Key and the, develop, and the entire like national anthem at some point. That'd be really cool. Um, and so that's kind of why you've heard of the battle of uh, the bombardment of Fort McHenry, because that's where we get our national anthem. Uh, and so in the aftermath of all of this, did we actually win the war of 1812? Mm, sort of. We didn't lose it. Exactly. Um, you know, and it, Francis Scott Key is going to go on to live a long, very interesting life. He defends a lot of interesting people. And um, we've already actually talked about his son on this pod. Becca, when did we talk about his son? Oh, yes. Uh, we talk about his son when we talk about old Daniel Sickles. Yeah, Dan Sickles. The best. Um, so, yes, go listen to our Dan Sickles episode. That's the son of Francis Scott Key. Um, and so that's basically the... Um, why the War of 1812 matters to us in the D.C. region. Now, there are a few um, 
things that you can come see in DC or Baltimore. For example, Fort McHenry is still there. <laughs> As is Mary Pickerskill's house. Mary Pickerskill makes this flag. If you want to see the flag, come to the National Museum of American History. It is there. It is the Star Spangled Banner. It's the highlight of a trip to the American uh, History Museum. It is in a special room. It is massive. Today it is 30 by 32 feet, so it is very large. Um, it was 30 by 42 feet originally. As I say, but not as large as it was. But not as large as it was. People took souvenirs back in the day. And uh, it, yeah, before it was owned by the Smithsonian, people would literally like cut bits off, which just is amazing to me. Um, Mary Pickerskill got paid $405 to make it uh, in 1813, which is more than people made in a year. Yeah, that was like a so year's a salary. So quite a lot of money. Um, yes. I would also say um, too, sort of connected to this in terms of artifacts is the portrait of George Washington. Um, the portrait that Dolly helps orchestrate the removal of um, allegedly breaking it out of its frame, right? And sort of taking it out because they couldn't get it unscrewed from the wall. That still hangs in the East Room of the White House today. Frequently, if you watch um, any event that's sort of taking place in the East Room, cameras are almost always positioned so you can see that Washington portrait. What people don't always know is that it's actually a replica. And by a replica, I mean, it's still painted by Gilbert Stewart, but it's a replica of what's known as the original Lansdowne po uh, portrait, um, which actually hangs at the National Portrait Gallery. So if you were to visit the National Portrait Gallery, which is a free uh, Smithsonian Museum, does not require the kind of advanced planning that trying to get a tour of the White House might require. You can go to their presidential exhibit, and they do have that portrait of Washington on display. And it is essentially exactly what hangs in the White House today. Um, it's just what's in the White House is a, a copy of that portrait. Um, but just like uh, today, you often have copies of things. Gilbert Stewart actually painted several versions uh, several times over replicas of that original Washington portrait. So um, if you can't get to the East Room of the White House, you can see it at the National Portrait Gallery. Yes. Um, and it's important because otherwise, you know, this is one of the light, we don't have super duper a ton of likenesses. They didn't have pic um, photography back then. So this is how we know what Washington looked like. Um, but yes, the Portrait Gallery is very cool and very highly recommend. Um, the... Um, so that's basically the War of 1812 in D.C. If you can't get to the White House, we, you want to go to the American History and the National Portrait Gallery. And those are going to be in the Capitol when it, it reopens. Uh, those are going to be your big sites. Yeah. Well, and the Octagon House is still standing today. Today, it's yes. the headquarters of the um, uh, Institute of American Architect uh, of the uh, Architects Institute of America. There we go. The AIA. I had to get those words in the right order. Um, and it's typically open as a house museum, although not during sort of our pandemic times. There's also a house in Georgetown, Dumbarton House, um, which is actually one of the first places that Dolly Madison stops off before sort of continuing on uh, in her uh, evacuation. And so there's some really interesting little pockets of War of 1812 history. Um, I'm always a big fan, too, of the Belmont Paul um, house, which is, of course, now the National Women's uh, Equality Monument. Um, but that was a house on Capitol Hill that was already existed. And it was actually allegedly burned by the British, although apparently they also tried to fight the British off and they actually fired on British soldiers from the house. Um, but there are like cool little places where you can still find that little bit of like 1812 history still standing in D.C. 
Yes. Francisca Key's house no longer stands. was on M Street near Wisconsin and Georgetown, and apparently they tore it down to make a more profitable enterprise, which would probably be retail, I would imagine. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so there's a lot of D.C., and I, I'm really glad that we're talking about this. It's the only other time in our history that the Capitol has been under threat, under physical threat, uh, and I feel like it's kind of important to sort of draw the parallel between how jarring that was and to our sort of present moment um, and how the, you know, the democracy is more fragile than I think we think it is. Yeah, for so long, you know, the sort of rhetoric or the language as a guide that we could use is, well, the only time this building's ever been attacked or the only time this building's ever been breached was during the War of 1812. And that's just no longer true. And I think that's a really significant, important thing to acknowledge uh, as we're coming to the one year sort of anniversary of this point. So I'm really um, thrilled that you uh, proposed this topic because I think it's important. It is a bit of a hidden history. We do memory hold us like the perfect way to describe it. But this war is so significant and it touches on a lot of topics we've we've talked about. Um, it's going to essentially put us on the path to a presidency of Andrew Jackson. It's going to really set up yes. a lot of important um, political leaders and names sort of come of age and emerge during the War of 1812. Uh, and it brings about the era of good feelings. And so we, we have a big political sort of shift there as well. So these are all things we will likely branch into in future episodes. But I think this is kind of a good jumping off point too to sort of talk about a moment in American history that we don't often get to on the pod, sort of a little before sort of uh, a lot of our podcast episodes, 1830s, 1840s, but to sort of get us to this this bridge moment between the revolutionary mm. founding era and then sort of that mid 19th century era. Right, yes, I agree. And there's a lot of it in Washington. It's probably the only place where there is a lot of 1812 history uh, is in D.C. and Baltimore. Yeah. So definitely come and check it and out. And highly, <laughs> highly recommend, um, you know, for those who are local to the area, Fort McHenry is a fantastic site. Um, the Pickerskill House, these are these are really cool, interesting sites, and they're well worth visiting. If it's one of those things you're like, I should, I've always meant to, like, go check it out. Um, they, particularly the fort's very, very well preserved. I've never been to the Pickerskill House. I've done Fort McHenry because everyone's done Fort McHenry, but I've never actually done the Pickerskill House. So, Tour guide, tell <sighs> all field trip. I know, right? We should. Baltimore's great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank uh, you. Thank you every- so much, Rebecca, for uh, giving us such a great episode. Thank you guys for coming along. Thank you, Becca. This has been fun. And uh, we will be back in your ear holes in another couple of weeks with... Um, Becca's going to talk to us about something Texas. I'm so excited. We're we're <laughs> getting real Texas, y'all. It's it's happening in the next episode. Will you speak with like a Texas like accent for I me? sure will. No. <laughs> um I'm from the fourth largest city in the United States. Thank you very much. I am a city mm-hmm. slitter slicker through and through. Um, No, we're going to talk about a big Texas topic, and this was a request from one of our fabulous listeners um, who we just love and who's been such a big supporter of us. So um, please know that we we take your pitches very seriously, and um, sometimes it takes us time to sort of research and prep or find a good place to slot it in, but pretty much every topic that gets requested gets done. So don't be afraid to pitch the pod. You can always um, do that on the internet. If you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you can always message us or tag us, or you can send us an email to our guide, tell all at gmail.com. Yes. 
thank you guys very much. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yay. Bye.